Good evening, listeners. It is October 21st, a wonderful fall day, and you are tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. So currently it's just after 7 p.m., and it's a Sunday night, so it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Classic. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. We also have a podcast available on iTunes if you're into that sort of thing. And so you can just go ahead and search iTunes podcasts for Inspiration Dissemination and look for the Orange Light Bulb logo. So Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live. Should they occur, any opinions that we express on this show are those of us or our guests and not necessarily Oregon State University or this station. So tonight we are joined by Laurel Sherman. She is a master's student in the Forest Ecosystems and Society Department of the School of Forestry. Did I get that right? Yeah, College of Forestry. College of Forestry. All right, so Laurel, um, you study a bird called the Purple Martin. And um, can you tell us a bit more about that? Why should we care about uh, uh, one type of bird? Yeah, I get asked that question all the time. Why care about one species? And actually, I'm studying a subspecies of the purple martin. So even so, why care, why care about that? Um, well, I'll talk about the species first. It's beautiful. It's big. It's loud. It's charismatic. It's easy to love by the public. And um, people just love to associate with them. Birders love to find them. So it's the... North America's largest swallow species, uh, so think tree swallows, violet green swallows, but it's almost three times the size, so it's a big bird, and it has a really loud, boisterous, um, beautiful, melodic song, and so it's a bird that is pretty easy to find, and that's good for a lot of <laughs> beginning birders. It gets a lot of people excited about birding and conservation, um, but also we here in Oregon have... Um, birds that still nest in their natural habitat. So on the East Coast, there's a large population of purple martins that are almost completely reliant on humans for nest sites. Um, they're cavity nesters, so they normally nest in snags, which is a standing dead tree. And so woodpeckers come in and excavate out cavities in these dead trees. Um, and then the purple martins come in and use them as nest sites. On the East Coast, they're um, pretty much no longer doing that, and so they're nesting in artificial housing that humans have installed for them. But here in Oregon, we have this population of birds that is nesting in snags still. So it's a really important behavior that we're trying to um, conserve here. And it's it's really just an awesome bird. So whenever the light shines on it, it's it's mostly like a, a navy blue color. But whenever the light shone, shines on it, it's this beautiful purple color. So people just easily fall in love with this bird. Really cool. So you've got like the two different populations, right? Or I guess of, of the subspecies, the western and the eastern. So the western ones live in the snags, which are like a more or less natural habitat for them. What, how do the eastern ones live? 
So if you, um, Fittibiti is from the East Coast, you know that it's pretty heavily populated and there isn't a lot of public land. Um, so there really isn't any natural habitat left for them to nest in. Snags are few and far between. Uh, so people are putting up these wooden nest boxes or plastic gourds to emulate cavities. So essentially like a bluebird box, but a little bit bigger. And um, birds readily nest in them, and they seem to do really well in these uh, more urban habitats and uh, human-installed housing. So it seems to work out pretty well on the East Coast. There are these massive populations of, of purple martins in people's backyards almost. So not only are these birds just really beautiful to, to look at, but, you know, sorry, listeners, you can't see them I we highly, have pictures I, up on the blog. I highly, yeah, I highly suggest you go check out, I think, uh, Cornell's lab or, or Cornell's Ornithology Lab. They have yeah. a lot of really gorgeous pictures. But what we do have as a benefit that you can't do online as much is audio. So. That is the call of the Purple Martin. So that's the alarm call. So whenever I go out to do my work, this is what they do at me, this alarm call, like, oh, no, intruder. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying that they that they live in uh, kind of colonial ways. So there's, you know, could be five or ten or even more than that kind yeah. of hanging out together. Yeah, so um, if you go down to Fern Ridge Reservoir or up at OSU Research Forest, there are colonies of 30 to 40 and even up to 100 down at Fern Ridge. So it can get really loud and just a cloud of purple martins flying around. It's pretty cool. So not only are these birds aesthetically pleasing, but they the way they eat is, or what they eat, I should say, is conducive to another thing that humans kind of like, and that's People don't like insects, and these birds love insects. So tell us more about their feeding habits. Yes. So they are called, this jargony term called an aerial insectivore, which essentially just means that they exclusively eat insects while flying. So they're only eating flying insects. They're not landing on the ground, picking up insects off the ground. So think dragonflies, damselflies, cicadas, things like that. Um, and there actually is a myth out there that they are eating a lot of mosquitoes. And so <laughs> people on the East Coast actually started putting up housing to um, deal with mosquito populations. But they are really not eating a lot of mosquitoes because <laughs> I personally think it's because mosquitoes don't have a lot of protein on their bodies. They're just these, you know, gangly little things. So it's they're like going after the it. big meaty insects like dragonflies um, and wasps and things like that. And you mentioned they can fly really fast. This is just sort of like the, you know, why they're so cool, right? They can, like, swoop down and, like, avoid falcons and stuff. Is yeah, right? yeah, it's so much fun to watch them flying. Uh, they, I mean, dragonflies are extremely agile flyers, and to be able to catch a dragonfly, you you have to be extremely agile yourself, and that's a major prey item of the Purple Martin. So, And I, I've also seen them um, outfly raptors, hawks, um fend off pine squirrels they're just and me you know dive bombing me when i'm dealing with them uh near misses all the time so they're they're just super fun to watch and listen to yeah so they they fly at speeds of up to or maybe exceeding 45 miles an hour and in order for them to be so maneuverable they have these like really beautiful forked tails incredible wingspans that just look like so cool yeah like, they're like knives just yeah. the males have these really long knife wings on the sides it's it's super cool so tell us a little bit more about 
why they're why what they eat is kind of being impacted by what we're finding out globally in terms of insect populations. Yeah, so there have been a couple studies that have um, just been published. There was one in 2017 that was published out of Germany in nature reserves. They found, uh, I forget the exact numbers, 75 or 75% decline in flying insect populations in the past 27 years. And that's in nature reserves. Um, So you would think that those would be the most protected places. And if that's happening in Germany, it's likely happening here as well. Uh, IUCN sites that more insect populations are declining than increasing, and those that are increasing tend to be the nuisance pest populations like cockroaches. So these these insectivorous birds and mammals like bats as well who rely on flying insects um, may potentially be declining because of declining insect populations. Um, so, you know, the, the future is uncert- uncertain for a species that has evolved to depend on in certain insects that are now declining worldwide. And as we grow and develop more um, human habitats further into the forest, I, I can imagine that has some impact on the, the, the diet and the population dynamics of the birds as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, historically, purple martins nested in old burn sites. And because there, I mean, there certainly are still fires around, but there is a lot of fire suppression going on. And so burn sites for purple martins are um, not as prevalent as they used to be. So and, and clear cutting is actually a logging practice that is much more prevalent than it used to be. So purple martins are actually kind of moving into clear cuts as a next best thing to burn sites. Um, we are still having these huge, severe fires, but they, they may actually be too severe and uh, impact the soils such that insect populations are not able to reproduce like they would be in a natural um, severity fire. Interesting. So, so because we suppress most fires that start and the fires that do get out tend to be really high severity where a lot of the vegetation is burnt to a crisp where you have essentially bare mineral soil, um, that isn't really conducive to producing the kind of food needed for the purple martins to survive. So like the next best thing they have are these clear cuts, which typically occur in industrial forest land that are constantly moving back and forth. But these clear cuts also have a lot of what what I call in my field stems per acre, a lot of trees that they try and grow very quickly. So the amount of time that that location is conducive to producing these kind of uh, insects that is necessary for this bird to survive is becoming far and few between. That window is just narrowing even more and more. Yeah, so I think uh, just anecdotally from my research, it seems like burn sites produce this this post-disturbance forest that is beneficial for insect reproduction for maybe 15 up to 20 years after the fire event. But um, the Douglas fir trees that are being planted have gone through so many generations of selective breeding that they're growing extremely quickly. And purple martins are only getting maybe eight years out of a clear cut versus that 15 to 20 years of a burn site. So they're, they're, they're being... Um, basically kicked out by closing closing in canopies of Douglas fir trees um, six to eight years after the disturbance event. And that, that's really not a lot of time. And so they're being forced to find new area, nest site areas. 
So this is where the West Coast differs from the East Coast, where, again, the East Coast, the birds are almost entirely reliant on human-made nests. The West Coast, typically, uh, these birds have remained cavity nesters, but as, you know, these these kinds of human interventions have become bigger and bigger, you're finding that more and more birds are being accustomed to being in the backyards or near waterways of urbanized areas. So tell us a little bit more about these two kinds of habitats that are a part of your research. Yeah, so there was actually a massive population decline on the West Coast uh, in 1960 through 80s. And so that sparked a lot of people in urban areas, uh, like at Fernridge Reservoir, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers put up hundreds of wooden nest boxes to try to facilitate a new um, long-term colony of purple martins. And that kind of East Coast mentality of bringing these birds into your backyard has started to spread out to the West Coast. And so more and more people are asking about or inquiring about putting up these nest boxes in their backyards, especially when they go to Fern Ridge and see this massive colony living in nest boxes. And so, they're really pretty. Yeah. They fly really cool. Oh, man. Yeah, so I, I can see why 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 this is happening. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't blame the people who are doing this. Um, and it, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are still these birds nesting in the upland forest snag habitat. So those standing dead trees in the, in the natural cavities. Um, and so it's kind of come out that there are these two habitat types, birds nesting in the upland forest snags and then birds nesting down in lowland waterways in these artificial housing units. Um, some snags also, but, but not, not nearly as many snags as in the upland forest. So um, it's kind of come into question, you know, what is the appropriate way to manage this species from here on out? Should we be focusing on these diminishing nest sites up in snag habitat in the upland forest? Or should we be focusing on these big colonies down at um, uh, wetland sites with artificial housing? So if you're just tuning in right now, we are on Inspiration Dissemination talking with Laurel Sherman. She is a master's student in the College of Forestry, talking about the purple martin and its diet and its habitat in the um, context of human development. So um, we've back to the diet. How do you know what types of bugs these birds are eating? So, uh, (laughs) I'm guessing you watch very carefully with very good binoculars. Yes. So I have all kinds of (laughs) optics. I have binoculars, a spotting scope, a camera with a telephoto lens and, and, um, volunteers and people who have helped me out spending a lot of time just observing these birds. Um, you, you can't really observe the adults feeding because they're so fast and agile, but what you can do is observe what the adults are feeding to their nestlings because they're going into these cavity sites repeatedly, you basically just set up shop under the snag and just keep your spotting scope pointed up at the cavity. Uh, so I have, and many other people on the West Coast, uh, spent a lot of time doing this and come up with a list anecdotally of species that the purple martin is feeding their nestlings. Um, and that has been a lot of dragonflies and cicadas and wasps and things like that. But there is still a lot of unknown because... These are the big insects that are hanging out of their mouth when they're flying in there, but there could be you know, purple martin beaks are kind of big, so they could be hiding a lot of smaller insects in there. So there's still this this big mystery about their diet. 
And you're um, helping develop this new technique where I think it's a new technique, right? Where yeah. uh, it involves DNA sequencing. Yeah, so I am using fecal samples from the nestlings to, (laughs) yeah, very fun. Um, I have collected hundreds of fecal samples from nestlings at different nest sites, and I am DNA sequencing them using metabarcoding, which is, um, you know, somewhat innovative now, kind of everybody's (laughs) using it these days, but I am... Uh, looking at employing a new method called stochastic labeling. So um, I'm doing some research and seeing if that could apply to my research. Um, But essentially what that means is being able to not only sequence the fecal samples and figure out what um, prey items are in there, but also how much of each prey item. So kind of figuring out which prey items are maybe most important for nestlings and not just getting a presence absence list. That's really cool. So you basically just get the DNA from the poop and then it just, hopefully if it all works, it should spit out, oh yeah, this much cockroach, this much dragonfly, this much whatever. I don't know if they eat cockroaches. Yeah, yeah if it, well, they don't. Because, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe they do, <laughs> maybe but I'll find out. flying cockroaches? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll get back to you in a few months. Um, but yeah, that's essentially the process. And uh, I, I'm optimistic about the stochastic labeling thing. It's only been used in a handful of published papers before, so it's an extremely new technique. And I am working with a committee member of mine to see if we can employ that. Very cool. So can you anecdotally provide some sense of the differences between the upland forest uh, kind of diet versus the more urbanized near waterways diet and why one may have made protein than the other? Yes. Um, but I would like to say that not all of the lowland wetland sites are more urbanized. Some of them oh, actually okay. are pretty rural. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily link with urbanization. Hmm. But um, the the wetland sites are just inherently producing higher quality prey because aquatic insects have higher amounts of omega fatty acids. And there was a recent study that looked at tree swallows, which are very um, similar to purple barns. They're a swallow, they're related. So, you know, I think it's worthy of applying this finding to the purple martin. So they found that tree swallows were actually choosing aquatic prey items, even if they were having to travel farther distance to acquire them. And that's because they are richer in these omega fatty acids. So quality over quantity, essentially. Um, So my hunch is that the populations on these wetland sites are, first of all, they're bigger colonies. And I'm guessing it's because there's more high-quality prey available to sustain these big colonies and that the birds nesting in snag sites in upland forest are having to either, A, travel farther distances to find these aquatic prey items, or B, just collect a lot more terrestrial insects. So um, I actually put up some malaise insect traps, which are just essentially netting that passively collect insects. And I put up some nets at wetland sites and at upland forest sites. And just based on that, I'm finding big differences in the types of insects that are available between these two sites. So for example, the wetland sites, as you might expect, have I captured damselflies, dragonflies, those types of things. And then at the upland forest sites, I captured mostly wasps, bald-faced hornets, beetles, 
wood boring beetles, that type of thing. So there's there's different species composition. And that translates again into like just less uh, protein or fatty acids yeah, or, fatty or nutritional acids. availability for the ones that are living in the upland snag areas. Yeah, so it might mean that they are having to expend more energy to collect more of these prey items to obtain the same amount of fatty acids, or it might mean that they're having to fly farther distances. I mean, purple martins can fly really far, so they can fly five kilometers if they want to in a feeding flight, um, but they're expending more energy to do that, so you know, I don't know if it's, if it's worth it in the end, but this right. is what I'm trying to hash out right now. Very cool. Yeah, that sounds just inherently difficult to to try and tease apart what the what the habitat availability versus the the habitat resources are. But it sounds like with this new technique using this this meta meta barcoding, which may not be novel in the genomics world, is pretty novel in your field. Yes. Which seems like it it's like the perfect thing to try and tease out these these individual differences. Yeah, especially combined with the stochastic labeling because up until mm, yeah. recently it's just been a presence absence list of prey items and while that's still valuable, it's not as valuable as knowing exactly how much of each prey item is within the fecal sample. Yeah. And then you've also been I mean, you mentioned that, you know, they tend to locate more towards their separate habitats, but they can they can still fly pretty long distances. Um, you've done some other work in trying to see how, how far they are distributed in forest sites, if, if I'm yes. remembering that correctly. Um, and uh, was that, did that fit into this study or, or was that something else? Uh, so that is actually a different study, but it, but it still is pretty interesting considering the snag habitat versus the uh, artificial housing habitat. So Basically, these we've been banding these nestlings since 2011. So there is a um, a large number of banded birds out there, and so then we've started doing band reciting surveys to figure out where these birds are going. And we've found that birds are actually moving from these artificial housing units, so the nest boxes, up back into the upland forest natural snag habitat, which is really exciting. Uh, for the conservation of the species, knowing that they're still able to move from this these nest boxes back into the natural snag habitat. We should say on the East Coast, it's posited that they may have lost that generational knowledge since they have only ever known these are artificial nesting sites that they may not even know to go back to these cavities and trees because one, they're so little, and two, they just may not know. Yeah, and nobody's tried. But it has been so many generations of artificial housing that um, you never know. It might be innately in their genes that they might just still be able to do it if the habitat was created for them. But, um, yeah, it's some people feel very uncertain about it. So there would have to be some testing done before any kind of effort was put into that on the East Coast. So has birding always been a part of your genes? Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, my mom's listening right now and she's shaking her head. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about how often you ran away and where to. <laughs> yeah. So when I was young, um, everybody said that I ran away, but really I was just going exploring into the neighborhood park. At least from what I remember. They just didn't have the I same remember. passion about birds. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I would basically, so Bird Park 
you know, funny name. I, I grew Wait, up in really? It's, yeah, called it's called Bird, Bird Park. Park. It was called Bird Park. <laughs> That's just too perfect. <laughs> I know. It's this tiny, tiny little park. But when I was young, it felt just massive. And, like I could get lost in it. And I would run over there and just sit under trees, turn over rocks and look for crayfish. But spend hours just sitting under the trees and looking up into the canopies and listening to the leaves move and the birds sing. And I guess it just kind of stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> so you... I think because of your love for the outdoors and your love for the forest, you did move away from home to go to the University of Vermont. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. Yeah. So I uh, moved to Vermont to attend UVM mostly because they had a great wildlife program, but also because of skiing and (laughs) and just the amount of public land around there uh, compared to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was just a lot more and just very appealing. Um, and I took a ornithology course there with a professor, Alan Strong, who was just extremely inspirational to me and a lot of other people. And he just ignited the, the passion. I already was interested in birds, but I was not super passionate about it. Um, and so Alan Strong was able to ignite this passion in birding for me. And it just it just set off from there. So you look, you're looking around and uh, trying to get your hands on some undergraduate research, if that's yes. right. Yes, yeah. So um, when I was at UVM, I worked with um, double-crested cormorants on Lake Champlain. And then I also did a study, a reproductive study of great horned owls. Um, so, yeah, and and also did a lot of nighttime owling trips <laughs> with Alan Strong and other bird nerd folks. So, uh, yeah, I, I tried to get pretty involved in the scene there. So before you became a graduate student here at OSU, you found a pretty sweet job back home. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I um, I actually tried to stay in Vermont, but wasn't able to find work there. So I moved back to Pittsburgh and unexpectedly landed a really amazing job at a nonprofit, the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Um, and there I just started from the bottom just doing manual labor, um, <laughs> but kind of moved up the ranks and started getting into environmental education and green infrastructure uh, and just learned extremely valuable skills, met amazing people, and I just can't thank my coworkers enough for that experience and how much I learned. You also did environmental education workshops for K through 12 students. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. We went into urban public schools and worked with kids who had extremely limited experience with the outdoors um, and tried to install curriculum that was outdoors based and reconnected them with nature. And then, um, so you, after, after doing that for a little while, you, uh, wanted to move out somewhere else and get back to the field, right? Yeah, I was itching to get back into field work. um, And it took me five years. But that job was just so amazing that every year it was a struggle to decide between staying at the Conservancy or um, getting back into field work. So eventually, I did choose field work and applied to jobs and got a job with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Bandon, Oregon, at the Bandon National Wildlife Refuge. And I was doing bird surveys there every day. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what originally brought you to Oregon. But tell us more about your decision to decide to pursue grad school. 
Yeah, so uh, I already was considering OSU for grad school in the back of my mind, and that's one reason why I applied for jobs at in Oregon and, and took this position, um, thinking it would be easier to connect with professor and faculty while I was in Oregon, not in Pennsylvania. Um, so I just started contacting folks at um, labs who needed volunteers or technician positions and started researching professors and quickly realized that Oregon State was where I wanted to be. And there were just so many amazing people working on birds here. Yeah. And then, um, so what's next? After you're finishing up with your master's program. Oh, man. Keep in, that keep, is the uh, question. Yeah. So, with the field work and everything? Yes, I would or? love to continue with field work. Um, I would like to find a job that has some sort of some element of public outreach combined with field work. So maybe some sort of citizen science element. But I, I do want to be in the field as long as I can be, as long as my body allows me to be. Um, collecting data and doing research and and just being outside and learning myself and advancing um, the field is extremely important to me. But also connecting people to this field and inspiring future wildlife biologists or just inspiring people to get outside more is also really important to me. So I would like ideally to include some sort of public outreach element. So one thing that you continue to participate in are some birding festivals. Tell us, uh, you want to shout out a few names of what of some that you've helped out with? Yes. So in Bandon, Oregon, the Oregon Shorebird Festival happens every year in September. And I've been doing that one since I moved here for several years. And uh that's that's that deserves a big shout out. Uh, it's kind of a drive to Bandon, but it's gorgeous and lots of great shorebirds down there. Also, the Pacific City Birding and Blues Festival I did for the first time this past spring, and that was really a great time. So I if anybody's interested in getting into birding, these are great opportunities to be around professional experienced birders as well as amateurs and folks who have no idea what they're doing so it's just kind of a a low-key relaxed environment to learn how to bird that sounds fun we put up some links to those festivals on our blog which is at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration so you can check them out there and as we come to the end of our show we have a couple traditions and i'm curious to know when you're not cleaning off poop from your arms or searching for more (laughs) birds or hiding in the forest you know, what, what do you like to do in your spare time? Well, I just like to be outside a lot. So, <laughs> I mean, of course I go birding myself for fun, but I also like to search for and explore and identify things. So whether that be mushrooms or wild edibles or insects, newly, um, just <laughs> getting out in the woods and, and spending time just looking around and being slow and focusing on you know, the environment around us and whether that be picking up rocks or um, looking in the water, just just searching for life. So um, I guess when you uh, go out birding just recreationally, apart from your research, do you like to say, okay, now this is a good opportunity to find like other types of birds? I, I, you know, just, just take off the purple martin hat and... Oh, that's a good question. Find other... Uh, or, or, or are you kind of, is it just, it just brings you back to that same mental space where, like, whether you're doing research or not, it's all just kind of, you're, you're looking around for yeah, well, whatever you can see. 
you can't take the birder out of, or, you know, you can't take the birder out of me. So if I'm out there doing Purple Martin surveys, I am definitely birding as well. And that's yeah. just how it, it is. But, um, and vice versa, if I'm just birding on my own time, of course, I'm going to be, if I see a Purple Martin, I'm going to be writing down data yeah. and taking data. So the two are really intertwined uh, for me. And I, I think that's what, what keeps me passionate about my research. Fun fact, if you hang out with Laurel, you'll probably hear a Purple Martin following her in her pocket. Oh, yeah. My my <laughs> cell phone ringtone is definitely the Purple Martin song. Is that the alarm call or is that the... No, um, no. It's the, uh, it's the male territorial song, the song that it uses to attract mates and pr- um, protect its territory. But uh, it, So maybe you can lure like female yeah, Purple Martins in. Yes, that, yes. Now you've, you've discovered my secret plot. <laughs> so um, our, our other tradition, or I guess we, we're accumulating traditions here. We are. But um, <laughs> so, you know... What advice would you have for any incoming graduate students, anyone else who's like particularly interest in, interested in research or science, or maybe just like for a younger version of yourself? How would you, uh, uh, how would you guide them throughout the adventure that is uh, grad school and just like pursuing your passion of birding? Yeah. So with grad school, I'd say to take the opportunity to try new things. If you have some sort of idea that you think is a little bit crazy, this is the time to try it. You have all the resources available to you. You have these professors and faculty willing to work with you. And, you know, I I tried multiple methods of insect collection that failed miserably. (laughs) Including a drone. Yes, including (laughs) use of a drone. Well, I think that still has some some potential. Okay, we shouldn't write that out yet. To be determined on that one. But (laughs) Yeah, that'd be really cool. (laughs) Lots of failed drone flights, we should say. But the point being, um, you know, if you if you think, oh, I could use a drone to do my research, you might as well try it now, because when you're done with grad school, you're not going to have an entire drone lab at your disposal. So just, you know, go big and try new things. And if you fail, it's just a learning experience. Yeah, Fun fact, I think we have a drone lab in the College of Forestry where they do drone, drone, drones and drones. Yeah, there's a there's a couple uh, drone labs on campus. Nice. Yeah. Um, so our our last uh, our last piece is to ask you for a song. So what song did you choose and why? So I chose a fish song. It's called Tube, and it wasn't that difficult to choose a fish song because most of them are fifteen to thirty minutes long. So <laughs> finding one that was appropriate for a radio show was pretty easy. But um, I used to follow fish around the country for a little while, and um, they are absolutely my favorite band. So of course, I had to pick a fish song. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, Laurel, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Here it is with uh, Fish's song called Tube. Enjoy. crashed and nothing burned. It made me wonder, did I go sleep in lily patches? Do I know 